Another election, another term limits pledgeure in Congress. Hi, I'm Philip Lumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the term limits movement for the week of December 7th, 2020. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. While everyone is focusing on the upcoming U.S. Senate runoff elections in Georgia scheduled for January, yet another runoff election was held in Georgia just last week. On Tuesday, December 1st, Democrat Kwanzaa Hall was elected to fill the seat of deceased Representative John Lewis. Who is Kwanzaa Hall, and how might his election affect the movement to tournament the Congress? Let's ask U.S. Tournament's Executive Director Nick Tomblides. Hey, Nick. Happy Boxing Day. Thank you. So who is Kwanzaa Hall? Kwanzaa Hall is a brand new member of Congress Mm -hmm. from Georgia. He was just sworn in. He's a former member of the Atlanta City Council, and Mm -hmm. he has just become the third Democratic signer of the U.S. Term Limits Pledge to be elected to Congress. Fantastic. It's a bit of a weird situation. Um, He's replacing the civil rights icon, John Lewis, uh, who passed away. And he won a special election, so he only gets to serve until January. He won the special election. Someone else won the general election. But that's not to say his win doesn't speak volumes and doesn't have value for the term limits movement. Because, again, he is a Democrat. It is a very high-profile seat, lots of visibility. And Mm -hmm. um, in the short time he's there, he might be able to make a big impact. So he ran to fill out the rest of John Lewis' term. Even though he just won this last week, he's going to leave office in January. That's right. Yes. Okay. Now, the woman that won the November election and will be taking over in January, Nikema Williams, she's not a pledge signer, is she? No, she's not. She is not. But there was no pledge signer in her race. So in Kwanzaa Hall's race, when the special election, voters were given the choice between Kwanzaa, a pledge signer, and his opponent who had not signed the pledge, and they went with the pro-term limits candidate. I'm wondering if maybe there won't be a matchup in two years from now between Hall and Williams. Okay. So he'll be in office for a couple months. I assume that we will follow up with him, and uh, maybe he will be a short co-sponsor of the Congressional Tournament's bill for a short period of time. That is what he committed to when he, he signed the pledge. That's right. Um, it is also significant because of what else is going on in Georgia. This wasn't the only runoff last week. Of course, we got the one coming up in January, which is also a battle between pledge signers and pledge refusers. Yes, ironically, on the opposite side of the aisle in the Senate race, the Democrats uh, were pledge refusers in Kwanzaa Hall's Mm -hmm. race. He is a pro-term limits Democrat. So it just shows term limits can transcend party lines. But I think it's super important for people to know out of this. There's one takeaway. It's that term limits is not partisan. It's barely even political, to be honest, in the sense of it divides nobody and it's pretty much a consensus idea. But there's still a group of people out there who see this issue as partisan, largely due in part to the Newt Gingrich and the Republican efforts of the 90s, um, sort of branded it that way. But it's never been partisan. No, you can Um, see that from the polling, of course, as well. If you think about it, are term limits on the president partisan? Term limits on the governor of Florida, is that partisan? For mayors, come to think, I've never heard anyone in either party argue against any of that. Congressional term limits is the same thing. And every time a prominent Democratic pledge signer like Kwanzaa Hall gets elected, and this is the third time it's happened now in just two years, even for a small stint, it makes a very big statement. 
Indeed. So that was exciting and unexpected, um, unexpected to me because not living in Georgia, I was not paying attention to this race. And I think that's probably true of people around the country. All the eyes are on Georgia right now, and clearly tournaments are part of that focus. This is a public service announcement. Senator David Perdue of Georgia is a relative newbie in the U.S. Senate, just finishing his first term. He was elected in 2014, winning the seat that opened up as a result of the retirement of Georgia Senator Saxby Chambliss. Before that, he was a businessman, working as a senior vice president of Reebok and then as CEO of Pillowtex and Dollar General. On November 3rd, he received the most votes, but did not reach the 50% threshold necessary to be declared the winner of his election. Instead, Purdue will face runner-up John Ossoff in a January runoff election. Senator Purdue is a signer of the U.S. Tournament's pledge and, fulfilling his commitment, has co-sponsored the U.S. Tournament's amendment. In January, he spoke at an activist summit sponsored by Americans for Prosperity. As with every moment of crisis in our history, God has blessed us with a moment of opportunity, and we have it right now. We can stop the gridlock in Washington. We can change the direction of our country. We can eliminate the dysfunction in Washington. But we can't do that until and unless we bring term limits to the United States Senate and the United States House of Representatives. Nick, did you happen to see the article in National Review by former Senator Orrin Hatch, Avoiding Judicial Armageddon, in which he uh, argues for Article 5? Yes, I saw the article. And um, it's important for us to note on this podcast, people are probably going to be wondering, yes, Orrin Hatch is the longest serving Republican senator (laughs) in U.S. history. He was first elected in 1877 and stayed until 2019. (laughs) Excuse me, 1977, not 1877. Sorry, he did not serve 140 years in the Senate, although uh, it probably did feel like that to the rest of us. Um, It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. It's a great piece. I'm surprised I hadn't noticed it sooner. And you might be asking, well, okay, why is the term limits group uh, quoting this careerist legislator? And the reason I would say is our movement benefits. Anytime an influencer, regardless of who they are, makes a positive statement in some regard to what we're working to accomplish. Of course. Now, I want to point out that in this article, he's talking about the topical issue of court packing. And he's not talking about tournaments. What he's talking about and what he's coming out in favor for here is the process of amending the Constitution via the convention process, which is one of the two processes included in Article 5 of the Constitution to allow the uh, Constitution to be amended. You know, of course, there's a congressional route, and then there's the states can amend it through the convention process. And Orrin Hatch is saying that if the Congress decides to pack the court, add additional members to the Supreme Court in order to influence its makeup, contrary to what polling is telling us that uh, Americans want, both Democrats and Republicans, then the only recourse we would really have is to go to the states and have the states demand a convention in order to craft a amendment that fixes the number of Supreme Court justices at its traditional nine. Right. So why would he choose this route instead of the congressional route? Well, clearly, it will have been Congress that did the court packing. And so clearly, the Congress cannot be the solution to the problem. It has to be the states. Yeah, and there were some great quotes in here, too. Um, What I like most is 
basically this tip of the cap that he gave to the pressuring Congress strategy, he said, even if the Article 5 convention never happens, it will still succeed because it will box Congress into a corner, it will put them on notice, and it will raise the political costs for Congress of doing the wrong thing. I really like that. Um, that applies directly to our project with trying to create a term limits amendment to the Constitution. We are trying to get Congress to do it itself, but recognize that it's contrary to their interests, so they probably won't. But to put pressure on them, we go to the states to call for this convention. We can amend the Constitution through the convention, or this convention could serve as pressure on Congress for them to do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And he said the threat of uh, judicial Armageddon, he was talking about term limits, would force states to focus on one amendment and one amendment only. That's a great theme to hit on as well, because again, we are advocating for one amendment through the Article 5 process, and that's 100% correct, that if the states are unified, mobilized, and galvanized around addressing careerism in Congress, for example, then they too would be able to focus on a single amendment. He was, of course, talking about court packing. We're, of course, not. We're talking term limits here. But the principle that he was hitting on there is the same as ours. I noticed that there were several uh, points in this article that reiterate points that we make all the time. And one of them is that the convention approach is really only appropriate, really only possible, when the states are looking to amend the Congress in a way that is supported broadly by the American people. You can't get anything through the convention process that is extremely controversial. Like You're not going to have an anti-abortion amendment or an overturning of the Second Amendment or something in a convention because it's simply too hard. You have to have 34 states call for the convention on the subject and then 38 states, 38 states, uh, ratify it. That bar is so high and has never been done that it really calls for only subjects in which we have broad agreement from left to right. And maybe court packing is one of those. I know during the 30s, there was an attempt to uh, pack the courts for the same thing, for the same reason. The uh, Congress was trying to pass legislation that the uh, courts weren't having any of. They said it was unconstitutional. And so there was a, a move to add additional members to the court so that they would approve the legislation that was seen as unconstitutional. Well, that fizzled out. But the ideas come back into vogue, and he's suggesting that Americans don't like it, and this might be the only way to stop it. And um, I would say, sure, uh, you know, court anti-court packing might be more popular than like your garden variety political issue that people are fighting about on Facebook. But I would say court packing is still way more divisive than term limits. I mean, I know a lot of Democrats who are that. for court packing. I know a Me lot too. of Republicans who are against it. I don't know anybody outside of Washington and Tallahassee who's against term limits. So we, we are even more tailor-made for this process than, say, um, anti-court packing. But what I liked about this, even though I, you know, this is not a court packing podcast, we're not really going to get into it, you know, but he acknowledged the fundamental purpose of Article 5. And that is to give states a way to do an end run around Washington, D.C. when Congress refuses to propose the right amendments. I've got the quote right here. It says, from Orrin Hatch, Article 5 of the Constitution gives states an avenue to amend the Constitution. And this is the, the operative key word here, independent of Congress. That's Constitution 101. There's a lot of misinformation sometimes put out there by groups that oppose term limits trying to attack Article 5. They are completely off base. This process was created to allow the states to go around Congress and be independent of Congress. That was the entire purpose. I love that he uh, emphasized that here. That's right. When the Congress itself is the problem, 
it cannot at the same time be the solution. And that is why the founders gave us Article 5. Hi, this is Ken Quinn, Regional Director with U.S. Term Limits. This is part one of a series called Exposing the Myth of the Runaway Convention. I'd like to begin by providing a little personal background about myself as it relates to this subject. You see, I used to be adamantly opposed to an Article 5 convention being called. In fact, I was so opposed to it that I warned legislators in my state about the dangers of an Article 5 convention. Now, I believe this because I received information from an organization that campaigns against Article 5 to raise money, and they produced a DVD titled, quote, Beware of Article 5, unquote, as well as many other articles against it in their publications. I naively assumed that the information was truthful and accurate, and unfortunately, out of ignorance, I shared it with legislators in my state. To make a long story short, I decided to do my own research by reading the notes taken by James Madison at the 1787 Federal Convention, among others, reading the Federalist Papers and also the letters of correspondence between the framers during this time period. I quickly realized that I was wrong on this issue, and all of the information from that organization was completely false. Immediately, I did a 180 and decided to embrace the Article 5 Convention mode as the ultimate check against a runaway federal government. So let's begin by going back to the Constitution, our first Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. After the United States declared independence, the Continental Congress adopted the Articles of Confederation on November 15, 1777, but they were not ratified by the states until March 1, 1781. The Articles created a, quote, firm league of friendship with each other, unquote, and a very weak federal government with most powers remaining with the states, with each state having one vote. Now keep in mind that the country just broke free from a tyrannical government, and the last thing they wanted to do was place chains of bondage around their neck again, so we need to cut them a little slack here. The new Congress under the Articles of Confederation had no authority to tax. It could not control commerce between the states and foreign nations, among a host of other weaknesses. The worst part of the Articles was that it required unanimous consent in Congress in order to propose amendments and unanimous consent among the state legislatures to ratify them. Now this is a very important point to remember because it will come up in a future segment. The Articles of Confederation did not contain a provision allowing the state legislatures to propose amendments in a convention. Amendments could only be proposed by unanimous consent of the Congress and then ratified by all 13 state legislatures. About the only good thing in the Articles was the principle of rotation of office, which we call term limits today, but I digress. There were members in Congress that made attempts to amend the Articles to address this imbalance of power between the states and the federal government, but they all failed. The frustration over such a weak and ineffective government continued to mount, and action was taken that would be the impetus for a new constitution. The next step towards that was the Annapolis Convention of 1786. Nick, I understand you received a uh, fan letter this week uh, from a <laughs> from a let's call it, let's call him a constituent in Canada. Will you share that with us, please? <laughs> I think people are fans of term limits. We are here sometimes just the vessels through which that sentiment passes. Yes, this was a letter from a proud Canadian, Cam Finley in Lindsay, Ontario. 
And Cam writes, Dear Mr. Tumbleides, I just watched your address to the Senate about term limits. Although I am a Canadian, I empathize completely with all that you said and meant. Our Senate in Canada does have a term age limit of 75 years of age, but that is far too long. I congratulate and commend you for your candor regarding term limits in the United States Senate. One can only hope for political courage. Sincerely, Cam. Very nice. Oh, I think it's a fan letter. He watched your address in front of the uh, Senate Judiciary Subcommittee, and uh, he was impressed, and he wrote you a letter. And millions of people have watched this, and if, and if any listeners have not watched this yet, you should definitely go to YouTube as soon as this podcast is over and check it out, because it is a fabulous address, and uh, you've gotten a lot of fan mail on this uh, issue, and you're, you're just being humble. Forget about my address <laughs> for a second, though. Let's think of the substance of the letter. Okay. The United States is losing in the term limits department to Canada? <laughs> Canada is whooping our butt in the term limits department, at least in one major way. They have an age limit on their Senate, and we do not? Yep. That's yep. Yep. astounding. It is. In fact, you know, I, I guess I knew that, but it, he reminded me of it, and so I looked at it again, and I'm reminded that the Senate of Canada, is similar to the U.S. Senate, is about 100 people. I think it's about 105, but they're appointed, unlike ours. And it's really sort of based on the British House of Lords, you know, versus their House of Commons. And so it's quite a bit different animal. However, they amended their constitution back in 1965 in order to add this 75-year age limit. And it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. And I think that it serves, it has a lot of deficiencies uh, relative to, say, a 12-year term limit that we're suggesting for the U.S. Senate here in the United States. But it's not meaningless. No. Imagine if the same limit uh, existed here. Mitch McConnell, gone. Right. Chuck That's Grassley, right. toast. Patrick Leahy, yeah. retired. Yep. Yeah. Dick Durbin, hit the bricks. <laughs> There'd be 14 senators. 14% of the U.S. Senate would be ineligible to be there, including the majority leader of the Senate and the minority whip, if we had a 75-year age limit here in the United States. The Senate is notoriously an aged group, always has been. It often is made up of people that already served in the House for a generation before they even ran for the Senate. And so, sure, by forcing people out at that age, you would be creating more rotation in office, more open seats, um, which means open seat elections, which means competitive elections. So you would get a lot of the benefits of a tournament simply by adding that age limit like they have in Canada. So naturally, they spend less time in office than our senators do by the fact that they have to leave at that age. Yeah, I looked this up on the uh, illustrious source known as Wikipedia and learned that um, on average, Canadian senator only serves about 9.7 years. Uh, that was data from 1975 through 2015. And um, the retirement age was set in 1965, and it is to date— one of the only reforms the Senate in Canada has ever made in the 150-plus year history of that chamber. I mean, it's partly because Canadians generally support the idea of tournaments, even though there's very few tournaments. In fact, I don't think there are tournaments in Canada beyond the age limits. But there's been polling from last year that suggests that just like everywhere else, just like in the United States, that the majority of Canadians support the idea of tournaments, and not just on the Senate, but on the House of Commons, on just about every political position in the country. Yes, and uh, the support is not as high as it is here because uh, as compared to the U.S., they don't have as much experience with term limits. 
Right. And so there's a, a large number of people in the poll who are undecided. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, if term limits were to catch on in Canada, you would see the support levels go up. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's still still very encouraging. And, um, you know, we need to get our butts in gear here and catch up to our friends north of the border. Yep. Just to be uh, specific, the poll was sponsored by the nonprofit Angus Reed Institute, and it showed that 54% of Canadians think tournaments are needed. And it went all the way down to city mayors, this poll. The opposition to the idea is not very large, even though the support for it is just over half at 54%. The percentage of uh, Canadians that said they actually were opposed to the idea, or to be more specific, that it wasn't necessary, was what? 29%, 17% weren't sure about the idea, and then 54 said that they were uh, important for elected politicians at all levels of government. Canadians, like Americans, like people all over the earth, distrust politicians and want to reduce and limit their power to the best of their ability. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of No Uncertain Terms. All eyes are on Georgia, where two runoff elections in January will decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. But term limits are also on the ballot. It turns out that both runoffs feature one U.S. tournaments pledge signer and one U.S. tournaments pledge refuser. Oddly, it's the two incumbents, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, who have signed the pledge, which commits them to co-sponsoring and voting for the Congressional Tournaments Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Their opponents, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, have so far declined to sign the pledge. This week's action item is for Georgians only. Please... If you live in Georgia, email messages to all four of these candidates. Two of them should get thank yous for signing the pledge, reminding them of their commitment in case they win. Two of them should get friendly encouragement from you to sign the pledge. You can do this at turnlimits.com slash GASenate. It'll take you two minutes. Your party registration is not important here. It doesn't matter who you're voting for. Go to turnlimits.com slash GA Senate and send all four candidates a pro turnlimits message. Thank you. We'll be back next week. The revolution isn't being televised. Fortunately, you have the No Uncertain Terms podcast. U-S-T-L. Yeah.